Luke chapter 1, we're going to um, just want you to have it in front of you. That's what we read from earlier, or Amy read from earlier uh, for our text today. So um, we typically kind of follow along the Advent themes of hope, love, joy, and peace, or hope, peace, love, and joy. Uh, and we're going to do that this year as well. Um, but this year there's also going to be the element of kind of just noticing everywhere that you see fear not uh, in the text that we're going to read from. We saw it today. That's the single, that's the always happening reaction when somebody encounters uh, God or an angel in the Old Testament, right? They always, first thing they always say is don't be afraid. Uh, So that's just kind of a thread that I want to see kind of run through the whole season of Advent. I think we live in a world of a lot of fear about things, about what's going to happen next. And just want to remind you that in all of these cases, the first response of either God or one of his angels to those who encounter God is don't be afraid. Uh, So just want to pull on that thread this year. Not real on top, but kind of just underneath the surface. You might hear me mention it. Uh, And today's theme historically is hope. And so we're going to see that a little bit in the text as well. Um, But I want to just ask you this question to start with. I wonder how many of us have thought about why we decorate for Christmas with lights. Why do we decorate with lights for Christmas? Now, decorating with evergreen trees is kind of a northern European western thing. Uh, but, but pretty much, as far as I can tell, everybody decorates with lights for this holiday uh, in all cultures around the world that celebrate it. Why, why do we use candles and millions of what essentially are representations of candles, right? Christmas lights, that's what those are. They're representations of little candles. Um, why do we use that to decorate, right? Sure, part of it is because they are aesthetically pleasing. Like candles look cool. Um, Christmas lights look cool. Um, Whether you're team colorful Christmas lights or team white lights only, um, I won't tell you which team. (laughs) The twinkling of lights this time of year is is pretty fun, right? Uh, To the point where people have kind of started taking that Christmas light tradition and spreading it a little bit out to like, you'll see Halloween lights. Uh, In a few months, you'll see red lights for for, uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, But that's all kind of rooted in us using lights to celebrate this season of Advent, I was kind of teasing someone earlier today about the season of Advent and the season of Christmas. And if I've teased you that way, I'm sorry, I'm picky about it, just to be funny. Um, But the season of Advent officially leads us up to the season of Christmas, and then Christmas is 12 days, hence the song, 12 days of Christmas. And in both of those traditions, we use lights. And so as we start the Advent season, I want to just invite you to consider that part of why we do this uh, is that these little lights are, sim- are a symbolic way of remembering two things, two realities. One, that the light of Jesus has come. That's why we light the Advent wreath progressively each week. And as we get to Christmas Eve, uh, which will be on Sunday, and we're going to talk about what the plan is for that at the end of the service today. But as we go through the season of Advent, the light gets brighter. Why? Because the light of Christ is coming. That's what the word Advent means. It means coming. Uh, But also, it's a reminder and a symbolic way of looking forward to the day when we won't need any lights any longer, right? There's coming a day when we won't need anything but the presence of God himself to light us and to light the world that we will inhabit. The scriptures talk about that. And so, just want to invite you to think on the reality that, yes, we remember that the light has come, but we also look forward to the day when we won't need lights because there won't be darkness, And so today we're going to start our Advent journey this year in the Gospel of Luke. 
Now, the closing lines of the first chapter of Luke's gospel have this really interesting and haunting description of Jesus' birth. They they talk about it in the NASB uh, as the sunrise from on high. Uh, And if you've read from the prophet Malachi, uh, you might know that Malachi said to those who loved God that the, quote, son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. If you've ever wondered where the lyrics to that part of that one Christmas song come from, that's where it comes from. Uh, It says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's in Malachi 2. Isaiah, another prophet, had promised that before, quote, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, there would come a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, Malachi also spoke this way as he penned the final words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So now we move from the Old Testament, right? You flip a couple pages from Malachi and you get to the Gospels. And for us today, the Gospel of Luke. And by the time Luke is writing his Gospel, or by the time the events that Luke records in his Gospel are happening, more than 400 years of prophetic silence had passed since Malachi's time, and there was no sign, there was no prophecy, there was no word from the Lord between the closing words of Malachi and the Gospels that began. But here, what we're going to see today is that the long darkness is about to experience a breakthrough of light. And so the focus of the activity in today's text is going to be Herod's temple, Uh, which the historian Josephus, if you're like, I'm looking for something really nerdy about church history to read, read Josephus. It's really awesome stuff, really great. Uh, Some of you are into reading nerdy stuff more than others, and they're proud of it, so that's not a dig. Uh, But the historian Josephus dramatically described the temple like this. It was a building that wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white." So this is the setting for the story we're going to read today. This is the scene where the first flickers of light that the people of God had been waiting for will appear in 400 some years. So Luke introduces us to two major players in the story today. Uh, Kind of like a Jewish power couple, if you will, right? Uh, They are named Zechariah and Elizabeth, who Luke describes in glowing words. Luke uh, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah is kind of a ordinary uh, country priest, if you will. He's a regular priest. He doesn't normally get to go to the temple. That's not his thing. He's just, you know, today, today's day and age, he's just an average pastor. He doesn't have a YouTube channel. He doesn't have a big following online. You've never seen clips of him. Uh, he's just doing his thing and he's righteous before the Lord, which is way better than those first two things that I mentioned, right? 
He's one of an estimated 8,000 priests like this living in the area we call Palestine. Uh, And so the priests were divided according to an arrangement that was first instituted about a thousand years earlier under King David. And then it was reconstituted as 24 divisions after the Babylonian captivity. And if you're like, what? I don't know what those things are. That's totally fine. Those are just interesting historical markers if you want to study the history of uh, the people of Israel. Um, Each division of those 24 divisions had about 300 priests. So Zechariah's division, which is the eighth division of Abijah, that's a name of somebody, served for two one-week periods per year, uh, just like the other ones did. So 56 priests were chosen by basically random lot to participate in the temple ceremonies each day. Uh, The name Zechariah, his name itself, was a very popular priestly name that actually meant the Lord has remembered. That's a good name for a priest, right? Someone who is going to mediate between you and God, their name means God remembers. Uh, That's symbolic. And in his case, it proves dramatically prophetic, right, based on today's story. Elizabeth, his wife, is also of priestly descent. It says that she's from Aaron's line. She had the same name as Aaron's wife, uh, which is a preferred name for a priest's wife. Now, I thought about looking up preferred names for pastor's wives, but that seemed kind of silly, so I didn't do it. But it's interesting to me that there was a preferred name for the priest's wife. Her name also has significance, and it points to the promise keeping of God. So you've got God remembers and God's a promise keeper as a couple, right? So I said they're like a power couple for this role. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. One way to translate that is that they would be beautiful people in God's sight. This doesn't mean they're sinless, right? Doesn't mean they're sinless, but that their lives on the whole conformed, that they made effort to conform their lives to the ways of the Lord. That's, that's what verse 6 emphasizes. So it, it's safe to say that they likely had a good marriage and a good home life, right? If two people that are living together are walking with God and righteous before his eyes, meaning they try their best to strive to follow the ways of the Lord, then it's logically would lead us to conclude that they're probably living a life that's happy, they're satisfied together in all things, right? They, when they have arguments, which they do, they righteously figure out how to work through them. When they sin against one another, which they do, they repent and forgive one another. That's part of being righteous. And so they have these what I assume good lives, except for one very major thing for them in particular, and Elizabeth especially, they had not been able to have children. So infertility is an issue that in all times and cultures uh, bears some stigma, Uh, even in our time and culture. I can tell you this from personal experience, even as a guy, it bears stigma with us, Uh, but it cannot be compared to the stigma that childless women in ancient Hebrew culture would have borne. Barrenness was considered a dis- disgrace and maybe even a punishment uh, from God, right? Uh, here's some examples. Hagar looked down on Sarah when Hagar conceived, but Sarah remained barren in Genesis 1. Leah referred, referred to her former barrenness as an affliction. That's, that's a word for sin sometimes in Genesis 29. Hannah wept bitterly in 1 Samuel Uh, chapter 1. Barrenness even carried like a moral stigma. 
Uh, because in, in some thinking, it was not the fate of the righteous, which we see in Leviticus 20. Uh, and so Elizabeth has undoubtedly suffered some kind of smug reproach. Right? She's, she's dealt with this. In fact, in verse 25 of this chapter, she calls her barrenness her reproach. And our text says that the two were advanced in years. They were old, right? And so they knew that they would never hold a child of their own. That reality had set in. This is where we are in their story. But light is about to break through. Now, let me just make this side note as someone who, in my family, infertility is part of our story. It's very important that we don't read this story and make it prescriptive. This is a description of something that God did in history. It is not necessarily a promise that he will always do this in every situation of infertility. I just want to say that because I know that for younger couples that struggle with this, sometimes you read a story like this and you go, my faith must be weak. God must not be hearing my prayers. There's something wrong with me. And I just want you to hear me say from this spot, which I know carries more weight when I say it from here, that's not the case. This is just a story of what God does sometimes. So let's go. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay? So the Mishnah, which is like the kind of a set of Jewish teaching and tradition, says that before each of the two daily services, four sets of lots are used to determine the participants. Uh, In this case, the incense lot fell to Zechariah. And we have to know this. In this instant, this is the apex of his personal and professional and his calling, all of that. This is the most important moment of his life as a priest. The honor of offering incense was the highest that you could have as a priest. And so this is the biggest moment in his earthly existence. Many priests never got the privilege, and nobody could do it more than once. You you get to do this once in your life, if ever, and it comes to Zechariah. So imagine you're him, right? He's advanced in years. He's probably been wanting to do this his whole priestly life. And the moment comes. The adrenaline's probably flowing. You ever been walking into a very, very, very big moment in your life? Maybe you're a little shaky, right? This is him. His adrenaline's starting to flow, and he's coming to that attention that you get to when something is extremely important to you. His focus is laser-focused on this moment. He would have had great joy in telling his wife, Elizabeth, right? I'm sure she would have been so happy for him. Uh, She knows what this means. She's from the line of Aaron, a priestly line. So it's a big deal. He's serving God with um, his people in his heart. Uh, he's, he's in the middle of this beautiful temple, the court of the priests, where the sacrifice is to be made. We read in the text that outside, the faithful worshipers, they would have been in the court of Israel. They're praying, they're worshiping, and here comes the moment. He steps into the holy place. Uh, in front of him is this embroidered curtain of the holy of holies and all of its beauty Right To his left is the table of showbread. Directly in front of him is the uh, golden altar of incense. We see this in Exodus 30. To his right is a golden candlestick. 
And so Zechariah purifies the altar and he waits for the signal to offer the incense so that uh, the sacrifices go up to God wrapped in the sweet incense of prayer. There's a lot of symbolism here. And so you put yourself in this moment with Zechariah. He's full of focus on his role. I'm going to assume he is a man full of wisdom. He's been walking with the Lord a long time and he's righteous. Those kind of people are generally pretty wise. So he's probably going over in his mind all the things he's thankful for in this moment. He's likely caught up in the honor of what he's been asked to do. This is a big moment for him. And then suddenly he is shocked out of all of that because look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, the English language doesn't do it justice there. He is scared out of his shoes, right? He is terrified. So to his right, between the altar and this candlestick, is a supernatural being. And we know that um, his appearance is dramatic because of this extreme fear that falls on Zechariah. Something's not right here. The angel of the Lord, as, it, uh, as we find out, is none other than Gabriel, uh, who would have appeared in Babylon over 500 years before this in Daniel chapter 8. And so there's actually some really cool divine parallelism between here and, and uh, the previous appearance in Daniel uh, in chapters 8, 9, and following. And so Gabriel or Gabriel appeared to Daniel at the time of the evening sacrifice in Daniel 9 and now he appears to Zechariah at the time of sacrifice which is probably the evening sacrifice. Daniel describes his fearful response by saying I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground that's Daniel 8. Zechariah matches his terror you see in verse 12. Daniel is temporarily rendered speechless as would Zechariah be and we see that in Daniel 10 and then in here in Luke 1. Daniel's encounter and vision with Gabriel had to do with the revelation of the future Messiah and his messianic times and Zechariah's encounter, uh, as you know, with Gabriel signals the dawn of those messianic times. So Luke, the theologian, was perfectly aware of these parallels, right? Luke is a smart guy. He is aware of these parallels. He knows his Bible, and he's kind of artistically drawing them out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we notice. Now, Zechariah needs somebody to come pick him up off the ground. Needs a little comfort. You would too. I would too, right? Verse 13 says, but the angel said to him, and here it is, do not be afraid. Now, I always find it funny when you read that line in the Bible because you can't just choose to not be afraid. Right? Have you ever been terrified of something? And you know what? I'm not anymore. Doesn't work like that, right? But so this is an exhortation, an invitation. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. The verb tense that's used there uh, would seem to refer to the prayer that Zechariah had just uttered as he offered incense. So some think that he had been praying for a son. And I think that's pretty reasonable to think that. I'm more convinced, based on his incomprehension and his unbelief at being told that he would have a son in just a little bit, it's more probable that he was praying right in that moment for the redemption of Israel. He was doing his priestly thing. Whatever the case, Gabriel spoke 
and prophecy, right? A word from the Lord, which had ceased at the end of the last words of Malachi, occurred for the first time in 400 years. This is a really amazing moment. And so Gabriel's opening line is, I mean, it it blows Zechariah's mind. And it really is a bombshell in, in cosmic history. Look what he says at the end of verse 13. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Right? Now remember all the factors of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They've been barren their whole life and now they are advanced in years. And so John, or Yohanan, means God has been gracious, or God has shown favor. And so the logic of the prayer is pretty clear. A prayer that has just been offered for grace, for God's favor, has been heard. A son will be born, and he's going to be named God has been gracious. And so advanced in years, Elizabeth will experience this incredibly gracious gift. But the gift means so much more than just a child for her, it means the redemption of the world. So once the kind of the subject or the meat of what the prophecy is, it's stated, Gabriel, in all of his angel awesomeness, begins a description of who the son is. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now, I always want to point this kind of stuff out to you. This is, refer- this is John the Baptist, right, that this is referring to. Uh, if you didn't know that, now you know it. This is John the Baptist's parents. This is prophecy about John the Baptist. And he's going to bring great joy and all of that. But because the Bible is honest about the world we live in, you just need to know that the end of John the Baptist's life is horrific. It's not just, and everything was perfect from then on. It's a little glimmer of hope in the middle of a broken world. John the Baptist is beheaded at the end of his life. This one who's talked about here. So even when God comes through, until the day that Jesus returns, which we look forward to at Advent, we have to be sober-minded about this. God never makes promises that just say, happily ever after on this side of glory. And I like that because the Bible is honest with us. It doesn't pull punches. So both the personal delight of his parents and the public joy that this baby boy would bring would come because of his inner greatness of soul, right? This boy would become John the Baptist, and he would have an amazing, incredible heart. Jesus would say this of him, truly I say to you, when Jesus says truly I say to you, pay attention, right? Truly I say to you among those born of women, which is everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, That's the highest compliment anyone could ever pay anyone, ever. I say to you among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So next to Jesus, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son will develop a soul that is literally second to none. Not even Abraham, not even Joseph, not even Daniel, not not any of the, the giants of the Old Testament. He would surpass them all. And so this would be a joy to his parents. And Gabriel then revealed what would go into the the spiritual development of their son. See, it's not just magic. There's work to be done. There's development. Parents, those of us who have little kids right now, we can pray, Lord, patience, please. Right? And he's like, here's a two-year-old. Grow in it. Um, It says this. 
He must not drink wine or strong drink. So Gabriel is saying that John is going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart by some ascetic rigors uh, to be especially devoted to God. He's going to live a very special life. From birth, he's going to be prepared for special service to God through specific spiritual disciplines. He would never take strong drink. He would never cut his hair. He would never touch a dead body. Right? And if you're wondering, that sounds familiar. Yes, this is a similar, same kind of vow that Samson took in the Old Testament, if you know your scriptures. And so his inner life would bear a powerful testimony to the world. One, one of the ways I like to think about this is the reason John the Baptist was so powerful as he spoke to the crowds is that he had what I like to call prophetic distance from them. Not meaning that he separated himself from them, but that he didn't participate in the kinds of things that he needed to speak into. And for us as a church, in general, we have to maintain that prophetic distance as well. We don't do things the way the world does things because when we do, we have no voice to speak into that. And so that's why this is significant. It says in verse 15, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John's fullness would not be the same kind of fullness that's in ordinary people, but it's in the gift of the Spirit. Like, John's not going to be filled with the kind of things that fill the average person. He's going to be filled with the Spirit. One commentator said, a, such a total invasion by the Spirit of God was unprecedented. Now, here's what we need to know as you hear those words about John. John the Baptist's filling of the Spirit was unprecedented in his day, but hear me, it's not unprecedented in our day, right? This filling was prophetic of the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is the hallmark of all of those of us who are in Christ. That's why this, the gospel is kind of amazing, right? For John the Baptist, this, wow, this is unprecedented. He's filled with the Spirit. But Jesus comes and makes a way for you to be filled with the Spirit the same. It's not unprecedented now. This is an extraordinary son that's coming to righteous Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so now Gabriel moves from talking about who the son is to what the son will do. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this is partly a callback to what Malachi said hundreds of years ago about the light of God breaking through to his people. And now the first sign of this light is right here. Like, this is why Gabriel uses this language. He's like, Zechariah, you, you, you'll know these lines when I say them. It's here. This is what's going on. Now, this is honestly part of this story that I can actually relate to the most, right? Zechariah's doubt. I can, I get this. All the other stuff, I haven't experienced an angel coming to me while I was a priest burning incense. I don't, I, I can like intellectually understand that story, but this part, oh, I can relate to this. Doubt? Yeah. This is the kind of part, this is the part that I kind of get. I've been praying for something for a long time. God shows up in an unexpected way and instead of praising God, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure though. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have to remind God like he doesn't know or remind an angel like he doesn't know. Look at verse 18. For how, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Like, Gabriel doesn't know that. 
right? How often we remind God of the reasons why he actually can't do what he said he was going to do. Well, but did you forget God? I'm old and so is my wife, right? No, God didn't forget. He, he shouldn't have doubted and yet he did. And, and you might wonder, why is it such a big deal for Zechariah to doubt here? Why is it such a big deal in this moment of prophetic history that Zechariah doubts Gabriel's words? It's serious because in his doubt in this moment, in history, he is implicitly denying the power that is so central to the gospel, namely the power of the resurrection, right? If God can't give Zechariah's wife Elizabeth the power to conceive, how in the world is he going to raise Jesus' body from the grave? And so this priest's unbelief is unknowingly subversive to the entire gospel of Jesus, who Zechariah's son would begin to announce. And so Gabriel, the angel, uh, reacts decisively to Zechariah's doubt in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Okay, that's not an accidental introduction from Gabriel. He's reminding him, hey, you need to listen to what I have to say, right? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So he's reminding him, this is good news, whether you want to trust it or not. It is objectively good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, it usually didn't take long for a priest to offer incense. It's not like a long, tenuous thing to do. And normally the priest would come out uh, quickly, and he would lead in blessing the people. Again, we see this in uh, the Jewish text. And so those who were outside waiting for Zechariah to come out are likely doing what we would all be doing, starting to like, hey, what's going on in there, right? He should be out by now. What's the deal? And they're becoming restless as they're waiting. And when Zechariah finally emerges, he's mute. He cannot pronounce a blessing to them. The word here actually means mute and deaf, and in chapter 1, verse 62, we see that Zechariah's friends were making signs to communicate with him. So it's likely that he actually can't hear either. And so he's confined into his own kind of silent world. He is mute and he is deaf. He's an upright man whose life is characterized by faith. And yet in this moment, we have a failure for him to believe. This is an aberration in Zechariah's life. And so the discipline from God here is actually really redemptive. And I want you to see it. Most of us see this and we're like, man, that's pretty unfair. But I want you to invite you to think about it this way. The fact that when he walks out, he's at least mute, if not deaf and mute, actually confirms the promise of Gabriel to him. Why? Because if that part of the promise is true, if Gabriel's words about, hey, you're going to be mute when you walk out of here, are true, the rest is true as well. And so he can trust that in nine months from now, I'm going to have a son who's going to change the world. And so that means all the incredible things that Zechariah learns, not only about having a son, about, but about who his son is and what his son will do are also true. And it means that he knew, right? As a side note, he knew that his condition was not forever, but only until the birth of the child. So in the discipline of God is the confirmation of his promises to us. And I think that's so often the case. But man, I feel for Zechariah. He's, oh my gosh, he wants to go home and tell Elizabeth, right? First thing he's got to want to do. He loves her. 
So he's communicated what had happened. It must have been excruciating, but he succeeded. He figured out a way. And in fulfillment of God's promise, Elizabeth conceives. And her body, which had never experienced this before, experiences what it's like to carry a child and to give birth. And they're both ecstatic with excitement. And Elizabeth, in verse 25, says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So there she calls infertility reproach among people. And so though the true and full light is not going to come until the birth of Jesus, from this point on, there is a candle's worth of hope, right? There is a candle's worth of hope that is growing. Their faith, I think about the gift that this is to them, their faith, which was already probably strong, is literally growing with a baby, as they watch Elizabeth grow. In six months, they ho- they, they're going to host the young mother-to-be of the Son of God and even nurture her faith, if you know that story. They, they'll hear her sing what we call the Magnificat. And, and speechless Zechariah is one day going to sing a song of his faith. We call it the Benedictus. What, a stupen- what an incredible spiritual event that it, events that are coming on the horizon for them leading up to the birth of Messiah. So he, the Messiah who is now prophesied about in this story could die for our sins and give us eternal life. That is the light of hope that we actually light the candle for on the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, that Jesus is coming to die and to rescue us from the darkness, from our sins. And my hope for you is that as we journey through these four weeks, uh, next week we're going to be looking, uh, continued here in uh, Luke, we're going to be looking at Mary uh, as we continue to walk through, as we head towards Christmas. And so my hope is that as we journey through these four weeks, we're going to see that light grow and grow and grow together. Um, and, and that the challenge for us is that every year as we hear about this story, that it doesn't just become rote routine to us, right? That the story of Christmas is renewed and beautiful again every year. And so that's my hope for us over the next four weeks as we walk through the season of Advent. Uh, why don't you stand together and we're going to pray And then we'll be dismissed for a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back together and have communion. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this season. Thank you for this time we can come together. And I pray now that as we, um, again, greet one another and just experience community together, and as we take this meal, that not only would we look back um, and remember the waiting that happened for you, but also look forward as we ourselves wait for your return. And as we continue in this season of Advent over these next few weeks, that our longing for you would grow and grow and grow and just continue to grow even as we move past Christmas into the new year. We thank you again for the blessing of gathering. We don't take it for granted that there are many of our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world who are not able to just gather freely as we do and kind of take it for granted. So Lord, would you make it a big deal for us to want to gather with our church family? And we Thank you for the opportunity to do so. We thank you for the building that we get to have and that we get to meet in. Uh, And we thank you um, for, again, allowing us to gather here and just worship you and see one another. We pray all this in your name. Amen.